Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest, a big shooter in our community, and I'm happy to get into some stories and really talk about their career because today's guest has been awarded the best outside hitter in the French League. He's also a three-time French League champion. He's got a Champions League brown, uh, bronze excuse me, with his club in Italy. He's been a part of our national team, it feels like, at every level, so youth, select, junior, and senior, and he's a two-time Olympian. Please welcome to the show, Nick Hogue. Nick, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, I think when you reach your status in our sport and you've accomplished all that you have, sometimes there's just some stories that, that get out there. And maybe the story is better than the truth. But I'm hoping you can correct us right from the start. But where I wanted to start was just uh, the, the idea of you growing up in a volleyball house. So you and your brother both played at a super high level uh, and doing some research for the show. I think your mom even played on the national team. And then obviously your father, Glenn, is well celebrated in our country. But uh, I'm curious, when you were growing up, did you play a lot of other sports or it honestly felt like volleyball was the thing everybody around you wanted to do? Obviously, volleyball was kind of like the primary sport, but I did a lot of, uh, Glenn especially really wanted me to, to do every other sport that I, that I wanted to do. Uh, I did a lot of basketball, uh, soccer, and the, the, the main, uh, the, the other main sport for me was, uh, was American football, actually. That's kind of like I stopped playing other sports and started playing like volleyball and football was kind of the, the, the other, uh, sport that I was really leaning, leaning onto. And, uh, I mean, obviously, my family made it, so I, I kind of picked volleyball over that. But that was kind of a that was a tough choice because I really enjoyed the sport of football. Nice. And with your your parents obviously traveling a lot and Glenn working overseas coaching, would you say you grew up in Canada, or is there another place that you kind of identified that you spent a lot of time in? Uh, I actually lived four years in Paris uh, when he coached professionally for the first time. He coached in Paris uh, in uh, 1999 to 2003. So we all moved within. Uh, four years so that's kind of my my other my other home i would say is paris i i uh, i relate to that city quite a lot but if not it would mean we can yeah nice and would you say their sport model is a little bit different or did it feel the same because you were so young and you just wanted to be in the gym like was there anything noticeable that stands out uh even how france coaches youth basketball or, or volleyball than what you were experiencing in canada uh actually yes uh in, in france they throw you out on the court right away it's it, i think we started two against two but it was not like there's no ball catching or anything. It's all it's like straight volleyball right away. So it's right right into the sport and, and technically it develops players very fast. Um, I think France is one of the best best places to, to develop uh, technical skills. Like you can see, the national teams are incredibly skilled, skillful. So uh, so that's kind of their approach. They 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 throw you out on the court. Um, there's no kind of uh, it's it's straight to the point, straight to the sport. There's no, uh, there's no kind of steps to that. It's like you're thrown into it. It's really hard to develop that because volleyball is a very technical sport. But, um, but yeah, that's how I started when I was seven years old. Nice, nice. And how old were you when you moved back to Canada? I was 11. <laughs> nice. Okay. And I think Quebec, they do really well at football, right? Is that what you're kind of drawn to? Because were your friends playing it a lot? Or was it just something that you were going to do as like a school sport? It just seems like overall the province of Quebec seems to really love football. Yeah, it's one of the main sports I would say there, uh, other than hockey. Uh, my 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 best friend was actually playing quite a lot when I got back, and I got into it right away. I fell in love with it right away. 
played way through high school. And, and uh, I went to a volleyball dedicated high school about halfway through high school. And that's kind of where I, I kind of pushed the ball to the side, which, which, uh, which was, was tough, a tough decision because I loved it a lot. And uh, I was fairly good at it too. Now, when you say a volleyball dedicated school, was that connected to like SAGEP or to a university or to even like a club team that would compete on, on the Volleyball Canada circuit? Or was it really just a sports school that you would play volleyball every day and like maybe gym class was about lifting or doing something sports specific? Like how in depth did that school go? It, it, it's, it wasn't a, a, a volleyball dedicated school. It was a, it was a sport dedicated school, like, like you said. Um, and there was a program that was dedicated to volleyball. So I would wake up, I think it was uh, 6 a.m. and from from about eight to eleven, I would be training, lifting, and uh, and every every single morning from from Monday to Friday, and that's how I kind of just develop my, my 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 body, like my muscles and, and my technical stuff. Nice, and and to jump ahead a little bit to post secondary, is it true? Did you play a year at Sherbrooke? Uh, no, I played three years in the stage at Sherbrooke. Okay, and that's after that I went to, to the full time training center uh, in Canada. Okay, because one thing I wanted to bring up was um, you chose to play Canada Summer Games, but uh, the optics of it kind of pursued that you were already like a national team caliber player. But uh, I guess with it being hosted in Sherbrooke, was it really important for you to be a provincial team athlete and play with those guys and to play for your home province? Like, did, did that event stand out in your mind as something you really wanted to do? Uh, yes. Uh, I actually had a long conversation with Glenn about it because he was a coach back then. He was like, well, he kind of gave me the choice. Like, do you want to join us for World Because I think I only did that. Uh, one worldly weekend that summer, but it gave you the choice. Like, if you want, like, you could come with us and like gain more experience. But on the other spectrum of things, being on that Quebec team at a big tournament for the nation was was also really important for me because I would be a really leader, like a real leader on that team. That was kind of a stepping stone to like actually learn to be leaders. Also, something that was really important for me and for Glenn too. And he agreed with that. Um, the fact that it was hosted in Sherbrooke was also pretty cool for me. And uh, and I really, really, really enjoyed that tournament. Uh, so I put my fond memories of it with all the my teammates back then. And what was the prep leading into it? If you remember, like was Quebec uh, like a camp space program, or was there like a month dedicated to training with your group? Like, did you feel like you missed out on anything because you were in and out with VC, or did you feel like you spent a lot of time with that team and you guys were really connected leading into the tournament? So I played with those those same guys like for NTCs like two or three years before that. So I, I knew the guys, I knew the coach, and I knew like how uh, Team Quebec was training. I think I only missed because of that World League uh, weekend. I think I only missed one week of training. So when we got back from that World League, I went straight with them. So I didn't miss too much, and I also didn't miss too much of like the volleyball camp part. Uh, so yeah, I didn't miss too much, and it was great to be with those guys and train before going to the to the Canada Games. Now, obviously, it was still pretty young in your career, but when you look back at that event, was there like a certain sense that everybody was kind of game planning for you? Like you were going to be the guy on that team and everybody was like, when they're in a timeout, they're talking about you. Like, uh, how did you handle that at such a young age that you were going to get such a high volume almost every match? Uh, I was very confident back then. Uh, maybe ignorant a little bit, but also very confident. Uh, and I think that just helped me go through the motion. I, I knew kind of uh, I was going to get a lot of the like balls that are really important and, and I did. And, um, uh, unfortunately we lost in the finals against Alberta, but, uh, I knew, I knew the blocker. I was going to get two or three blockers every time, especially when it came, came down to, down to the last few points. But, uh, that's also a thing that helped me 
become a better player too. Like knowing that and knowing that I would find, I would need to find other solutions and just like getting in the middle of the court, you know. So I had to find a lot of solutions to score on those important points. And it, it's helped It's helped me to this day. So uh, in a sense, yes, I, I knew. But in the other, I also trust all my teammates to make the point if I was going to get set. So it was, it was a good experience for that. And and I have to bring up the the Ontario match in the semis because I, I have a lot of friends who were on that team and I know the coaches really well and they they were trying to remember back but I've talked to a few people and I got to confirm they think you scored four to the last five points in the fifth set to beat Ontario and and one guy I trust is a pretty good memory said you got a front row kill went back to the service line smashed an ace they call a timeout you come out of the timeout smash another ace and then he thinks you got a back row kill in transition to end the match like do you remember just feeling untouchable in, in the fifth set against that game against Ontario well I remember it was P1 and then like you're right I, I, I got I got the set um, off the right side and scored got two aces and then I, I remember clearly remember the last point. It was a block from our left side, a one-handed block. He just like went for the show and got the one-handed block, and uh, that'll I'll always remember that because the crowd was going nuts too. Because it's all like half the crowd was all people that I knew, my friends, and stuff. So that was fun too. But yeah, I, I, there's sometimes that I feel like I can't miss a serve, for example, or I can't not score, and that's just a strange feeling that I can't really describe. Uh, it happened to me actually. This summer during DNL, where I was serving, I was just like, I'll just keep hitting the ball as hard as I can. Like, it just I, I, there's a feeling where like you're in the in the zone and you can't miss, and it doesn't happen all the time, honestly. But when it does, it's a great feeling, and I, that's one of the times where I really felt like I could really not score a point if I if I got the ball. Yeah, like when you think about your approach, maybe it's changed since back then, but like. Does the timeout really affect you? Because I think as coaches, sometimes we think we have more power than we do, that we want you to think about it or we want to stop the momentum. But to get an ace leading into a timeout and to come out of a timeout and get another ace, like is that something that even went into your mind? Or like you said, you're so confident that you were just going to go for it from the end line? Uh, it, did, it didn't bother me. It, uh, it gave me some rest. And, and, and no, I, I knew where I was going to serve. I knew I was going to go for it. I wasn't going to back down and just, just give a free ball. Uh, uh, I think it was 12:10 when I went for my serve after the timeout, and uh, I was going to go for it. I was, I was so hyped up. I was I had tons of energy, like the crowd and all the people that were there. It was it was, it was a great experience, but um, the, the timeout didn't bother me. And just a quick sidetrack from kind of your timeline, we were talking before the show, and I think serving's a, a skill that you've definitely put a lot into and get a lot out of. So when you look back as a youth athlete. Because you're, you know, a coach's kid, were you the kid like throwing up spin serves to yourself, like learning and kind of horsing around a little bit? Or when did you kind of feel like serving was a skill that you kind of excelled at and you were going to be either jump float server, jump spin server? Like, were, were you a seven-year-old who was hitting a jump float in the gym? Or how, do, how young do you remember that you were going for it on your serve? Well, I remember when I came back from Paris and I joined, uh, like, I always, when I was younger, especially when I came back to, to Sherbrooke Brown when I was 11, I always trained with people that were older than me. Um, and I remember coming back from Paris and like already trying to spin serve. Like I wasn't successful at it, but I, I, I was trying the technique and I was perfecting. But I don't think it was until my third year pro, actually, and when I moved to Paris after I played two years in, in France, I moved to Paris for my third year to play professionally there. And that's when I changed my toss a bit. I had a little bit of a lower toss and I tried like some float serves with the same toss. That's kind of really when I perfected the serve. And that's when I was like, I really, that's a skill I, I love. It's probably my favorite skill out of all of them. And 
I want to be the best at as I can be. And when you're really feeling your serve, like let's just zero in on the jump float for a second. Like, are you so confident that you can move, I don't know, the front or left side to his left and in front or like how, how accurate can you put it with like the speed and pace necessarily to stress out like a world level passer right now? Uh, I'm confident I can serve any seam and the lines are a little bit trickier because there's more space to mistake, but I'm pretty confident I can hit any seam and even the line at a, at a decent pace, like over hundred kilometers an hour. So. I'm always curious with top spin servers, like you can actually pinpoint the seam. Like it's not as simple as like you're cutting the cord in half and you're going to hit it as hard as you can. Like you are being very specific at that speed or, or sometimes you just hit it and hope it goes in, not hope it goes in, but like, you know, it's in, but you're just going to crack on one. Yeah. And there's some servers that like, like lay on, but he's a guy that like, no matter where he puts it, no matter who's receiving, he'll do a lot of damage. Um, I don't have that 135 kilometer speed, but I, I can pinpoint a steam and I'll go instead of going like 120, I'll go 110, but it'll be like reflecting the steam, knowing that maybe the passer at the sixth struggles to his left or to his right. Uh, that's probably the game plan that, that the coaches give to us, but uh, definitely that's something that I work at. Knowing, like, I'll, I'll well put, we, we, I've done this before with the, the national team, you put mats on the floor and like, oh, specific, specific scene I have to hit. And uh, yeah, the accuracy is very definitely something, especially on my serve because it's not serves that. It's not a serve that's 130. I can I can hit it hard. I don't think I've, I've gone up to. I think my hardest is 124. But uh, hitting, being accurate, is, is another very very deadly weapon. And I'm curious with either club coaches, pro coaches, national team coaches, has any team ever had like a system that's affected your serve? Like uh, Coach Your Brains Out is a very popular podcast in the U.S. They do a great job. And John Spira was on there and he felt like he had to win over the U.S. team where like if Taylor goes back and misses and Matt Anderson's the next server, we don't want Matt thinking that he has to make it because we can't miss two in a row or whatever the team rule is. We want him to think like he's got the green light to go for it. So in your career, do you feel like you always have the green light or is there a moment that creeps into your mind where kind of like, oh, the guy in front of me just missed. So now I got to make it so we can get a little bit of pressure on these guys that they have to earn a side out here. Uh, that never goes through my mind, actually. If somebody misses before me, I'll, uh, I'll obviously judge depending on the score, depending on the, uh, who's our next server? If I'm really serving well and I have like, six aces in the game, I'll go for it. Uh, I, I feel good on the service line. Uh, I can float. I can float the ball depending on if there's a pass or the struggles with float serves. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. If if I do feel like the team we're missing a set of great plus serves a set or in the set right now, definitely I'll, I'll maybe take some off. But I think one thing that's really uh, underdeveloped is an eighty percent serve, where it's low risk but it's still like fairly high reward like knowing that you can hit the scene at a good pace knowing that they might not have a, a double plus pass or they'll have to like set the outsides as opposed to like having that middle option um, I think that's something that needs to be developed by everyone by every athlete um, and that'll help a lot because knowing you can go back there and not just like put a few ball over but knowing that you can put them in trouble and that you will make that serve 85% of the time yeah, no, that's great to hear. And, and then the decision for you to either float or spin, is that really depend on the scattering report that you're kind of so confident in both? Or is there ever a day where you're just feeling one over the other? Like, does it usually come down to what's going to make them uncomfortable? Or sometimes you just say, like, I, I can't miss from the end line, so I'm going to I'm gonna crack a few spin serves. Uh, I mean, my serves are 80 to 85% spin, but I want people to know that I know how to float with the same toss and being very deceptive about it. Knowing the passer maybe struggles with float, and I'll hit like two, three spins at him, and then 
pop a float in there, and he, he shanks it, then like it's it, it, it ends up being you know, quite a mind game after that too. Um, I really have a, I, I love my short serves as well. Um, so I have a lot on my in my arsenal, and I've been working at it, especially serving. I've been working so hard for the past like I would say eight years that I'm uh, I'm still working at it today. There's nothing that's perfect, right? So uh, knowing that the receivers know that I have everything makes me have quite a bit of edge on it. Nice, nice. Uh, and I'm curious for any either coaches listening or younger athletes, is there any serve that you would encourage people to look into that starts to like layer a game plan that you feel like when you spin serve into one, you get behind the setter and maybe they can't set the middle zone very well? Or is there any like game planning stuff that you would like to uh, maybe more people to draw attention to that you just feel is like a, almost like an if this, then that statement in our sport that if you can hit this zone, then the other team reacts in this way? Or, or is it almost too hard to crack that code because the skill level is so high right now? Well, that's a good point. Actually, serving to one is a tactic that, that a lot of coaches use, especially when it's a team that, that struggle from, from uh, when the ball is coming from behind the setter. Uh, the other thing is, I think that a serve that's going, this is TJ, actually, I'm quoting TJ Sandy. He, uh, he hates, or the most difficult ball to set is when the pass is coming from behind him, but also the pass is coming, or the serve is coming from behind him as well. So from five to one, is even harder from, than from one to one, if that makes sense. Uh, he told me that, and, and, and I kept that in mind because now sometimes when the, the objective of the game plan is to serve to one, I also I sometimes move to five and then serve to one. So the ball comes from behind the setter twice, like from the service line and from the passing spot too. Yeah, I'm just thinking anecdotally i don't really have the numbers in front of me or even like a strong grasp but i would imagine that's easier for a float server to go five to one like do you as a spin server who maybe wants to thumb up a couple balls do you feel like you have less real estate or are you just as confident with your spin serve going line to line uh now i'm as confident um obviously that's something i had to develop but uh a serve, a serve to one is a great serve regardless of where where it comes from uh from service line but uh i i've been working at serving from everywhere from the, from the very far part of one area and also all the way to five. I, I really want to develop and know because maybe one day the game plan is going to be to get this guy's trouble when the serves from five or three one. And that's when I know, like, regardless of what happens, knowing the game plan, I can serve there confident about it. Too. Now, it, it seemed like it was almost a trend at the Olympics that spin servers, and maybe it happened before the Olympics, I'm sure it did. That the ball's starting to like hook into the seams. It doesn't look like like a twelve o'clock, six o'clock spin serve anymore. Where it looks like it's coming across on an angle. I'm wondering, is that deliberate and something you pride yourself on? Where it almost makes the passer have to go arms first, or they have to negotiate the seam a little bit more. So, do you feel like you're ever giving up pace to hit this ball that hooks a little bit, or you can still like crack on these and get the ball to bend a little bit? Uh, I like I like giving it a little bit of side spin. I think one of the hardest serves to pass is for the receiver in five to pass a serve that's coming from one and curling into the seam in five six. I know that's a lot of numbers, but it's kind of curling away from the guy in five into six, and that's really hard because you have to get behind it, or, like or else it's going to skid off the arms. Yeah, there's 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 so many cool servers out there that you can, that you can watch. And, all the way from where they serve from to what their toss is like and what their spin is like. Like you said, there, there's, there's a lot of guys that obviously hit it really hard. It floats a little bit, but some other have a little bit side spin. There's one, uh, uh, Byron Ketarakis, he's a center on Team Canada. His serve, somehow, he goes from six, but it hits 
that five six seam so well, and it curls away from the gun six. So it's such a hard serve to to, to pass. It's it's a very like I would say dirty serve, and that's that's why he's one of the best servers I would say on on Team Canada. Now we've had TJ on the show a couple times, and he really likes the cat and mouse game of scouting, and like he thinks almost he's looking at your blocker. So if you're scouting him on like a previous match, you have to know yourself to know what he's doing. It was just this great layering of the game plan. So when we're, we're talking speeds that you're, you're saying like a world-class guy's hitting over 130 and a lot of guys are hitting over 110. Are you scouting before the match and you're confident they're going to go 116? Or do you think that they're so skilled like you are that they're game planning and saying, well, we're going to serve on our left, even though that whole previous match, he was going into 1-6. Like it, I think it's easy to spotlight the cat and mouse between the middle blocker and the setters. Is there also a cat and mouse going on between the receivers and the server about who can change what first? Definitely. I kind of, like I said, I kind of like to have every single serve that I can like put in uh, confidently, but there's, there's, there's less serves. Like I would say Leon or uh, that, that just go for it. And his serve is so difficult to pass regardless of who's passing that like, he's just going to bomb it and you know, it's coming and you, you just have to like, it's, it's a, it's a defense. It's not, uh, and there's some, some like full service, for example, um, some guys that toss float, but have some hybrid serves, uh, like Graham Bygrass has a great hybrid serve too. Uh, he's more, like you said, a little, uh, little game between the receiver and him. So that's, there's definitely that. There's a lot more of that than really strong serves, I would say. Because most of the, most of the athletes in the world can hit between 110 and 120. Um, above 125, it starts to get like a very unique, unique type of type of players. And, and that was a great point you brought up earlier about like you'll put mats on the floor, or like a visual, or, or is there anything else you can do in the practice gym? Because uh, I think coaches, that's maybe the hardest thing to recreate is like the pressure moment of going back to the service line versus oh, you're going to serve 25 balls at the end of practice. There's no way that's going to feel like a VNL serve, right? So, is there anything that you found to either match the pressure or that you've just gotten so many touches that you're comfortable in any situation. Like it is an individual skill, but how do you practice it so much that it does transfer to a big match? Uh, I think putting like yourself in context, whenever you're serving, it's easy to go through motion, but I think it's really important to be like, Hey, like it's 24, 24 and just really imagining it, maybe closing your eyes for five seconds, really adding that layer of pressure that might, you might not feel as much as in a game. I think it's hard to recreate exactly how you feel situation like that i think it just comes with experience and how many how many moments like that you you, uh, you went through but in practice it's you could try to recreate maybe five percent of that and it's still better than just going through the motion so yeah i think that's that's the the, the we actually talked about a lot about it on the national team and that's something that we uh we go by because when the big moments come you can't just get it in because the other team is gonna like free ball getting a free ball uh is a, is a big gift for the other team so and just one more question on the serve. I'm curious where you stand on this, where a player at your level who's obviously scouted the opponent, do you like the signal from the bench where they're going to tell you where to serve? Or do you feel like you have the recall and you can feel out the match a little bit? Because I think some coaches don't like the idea of giving the signal where some totally want to drive the bus and almost be calling signs like a back catcher in baseball. Like on the national team, is Glenn or Dan telling you where to serve or you know the assignment uh, before you get back to the end line? Uh, to me, they never told me where to serve. Obviously, there's a game plan saying that that's the weaker receiver. But when there's a weaker receiver, you don't just go straight at him and try to hit the seam and make him move it because most receivers are skilled enough to pass, like low serves or, or good spinsters. But if you hit those seams, those are the danger zones, right? So 
I'm always looking for those seams or for the line shots near the receiver that's on paper weaker. And obviously, if the guy's just passing really well and he has a good day, then they'll adapt and talk to us and say, like, okay, let's try to move it to, to another receiver or serve up, only serve to one because instead of struggling. A lot of information go, goes through during timeouts and through the game, too. So. Nice, nice. Yeah, we kind of got sidetracked there, but I hope we can go down the rabbit hole a couple more times. But uh, uh, again, looking at your career, so you go the Canada Games path, you pay for Team Quebec, you do SAGEP, uh, but you're always kind of dipping in and out of the national team. So your first year of FTC, did that feel like a different level? Like we, we've had other guys on the show and they feel like FTC was perfect for them to get stronger and really focus on volleyball full time with like two days and everything going on. So uh, how did you feel about, uh, well, how many guys were at your FTC? Like were you guys doing six on six stuff or Dallas uh, Suni has told us there was only five guys in his year. So they couldn't even play Laval in a scrimmage. They were, but he felt like he got way stronger. So I'm curious who was in your cycle and what was kind of the focus that year? And did you feel like you were getting pro ready? Uh, I was, we were definitely, I think, I have to see, I was really lucky. Uh, we had guys like Grand Vigas, uh, Jay Blank, and now TJ. So all the generation that basically was at the, at the Olympics game, uh, the Olympics uh, in Rio and Tokyo actually were there. The only guys. Uh, JVD was there. Like all those guys, uh, we had, I think, 12 or even 13 guys. So we were getting stronger, but we could also like get a lot of gameplay uh, um, going on. So it was great. I mean, uh, Alan Meek, uh, Chris... Chris, my brother was there too. Uh, who else? Uh, John Sloan. Two guys that I can't remember, but uh, Rudy Naboot was there too. So we had a great, great squad. Plenty of guys, plenty of bodies. And also, like, I mean, the main thing for that is really to get physically ready to play pro, but the fact that we could play six on six at, at such a high level was, was definitely a plus. And for an outside hitter, like, what would a two a day be like at FTC? Like, I think it's simple to imagine. TJ working on even like a coach tossing and he's slinging balls and doing stuff like uh, a light practice for you where you're not doing a ton of jumps. Is it honestly just getting a ton of balls off a serve machine or off a live coach arm? Like how did they keep you engaged where it didn't feel like it was kind of a boring practice, but also not wearing out like jumps and shoulders and all that stuff. Yeah. So a lot of it in the morning would be like the group in half. And then uh, let's say receivers go on the court first, there'll be a lot of serving machine or it could be like dig and set as well. Low impact usually in the morning, and then in the afternoon that's when we go to uh, drills and more jumping and stuff. But but the the weight program was definitely definitely quite heavy back then. So in the morning it was mostly focused on on, on weights, and then a little bit of skills, and in the afternoon that's when we went at each other on court. So. Nice, nice, and then. Uh, again by doing this show i'm always curious how contract offers get discovered and how you weigh one country versus the other so did you have an agent when you were at ftc and you were looking to join a club right away or like how did the offers come in and how did you decide like where you were going to land the first time you went pro i didn't have an agent thankfully i think i think it was uh jason holding uh reached out to me and he said he, he had a potential gig for me in tour coming out of ftc uh, Tours is one of the best teams in France, and, and, and France is a great is a great is a great country to play in, especially when you're trying to develop yourself uh, technically. That's a very technical championship. It's hard to score points. It's very uh, uh, not a lot of mistakes. So, and then I talked to I talked to Glenn about it because obviously I had the chance to, to have him and his connections and, and his knowledge about where is best to play, especially at my at my young age, at my young age back then. And uh, he said tour was a great spot. So I, I kind of went there my first year. I didn't have an agent. I only got an agent two years into my professional period. I think I signed two years in tour. And after that year, I, I got 
I guess uh, I guess it's still going to be now, did you feel pretty confident, one, because when you're at FTC and you're talking to guys coming back, like it seems like a lot of Canadians will go to France and have a good experience, but also being a French speaker, did you just feel like that was going to be a, a nice opportunity for you right out of the gate? Uh, that, that was a big part of it, too. Uh, I knew French, France, too, because I lived there four years of my life. Uh, I knew the language, obviously, that helps a lot, especially because uh, it's hard. Like, even, I'm in Turkey right now, and it's hard to communicate sometimes. You just go out uh, and get groceries, for example. So it's definitely, uh, it was definitely easy on that side. It helped a lot to speak French and, uh, and uh, people there knew I spoke French. So it was easy to go around and, and, and French street is a great country to, country to live in. Now we had Kim Robitaille on the show and her and I discussed that there's a difference between Quebec French and France French. Now, did anybody call you out on that or, or maybe like mention that you were talking more slang than anything? Like, was there any moments where they're kind of like, I understand you're speaking French, but it's not quite the same. Uh, actually, when I was in France, uh, when I was growing up in France, it was easy for me to get the to in and out of the French and Quebec accent. So I, 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 when I do speak French, France, I do speak with the French accent, so they understand me. But sometimes they ask me to speak Quebecois just to see the accent. They think it is funny. <laughs> That's great. Now, doing some research for the show, I noticed that tours was a two-year deal, like you mentioned. And every other year, it looks like it's been ones. Do you feel comfortable, almost the concept of betting on yourself, where if you have a good experience, they'll probably want you back. And if you want to shop around a little bit, like you have the option where with with pro volleyball, I'm fascinated that so many people do this, where growing up as a North American sports fan, it seems like players are always pursuing the long-term deal, where how do you feel about going one and done and and just kind of bouncing around a little bit or or looking for better opportunities all the time? Uh, Well, financially, I like to go for one-year deals because... um, if you have a great year, maybe your salary's going to double. Or the thing is, it is safe to go for two-year deals. But I'm fairly confident myself that I'll be able to get a deal every year, uh, even though it might sometimes it might be like five percent less or five percent more or something like that. But I'm uh, as I go farther on in my career, maybe that's it's an idea that kind of that pleases me is to, to maybe sign a two or three-year deal just to be settled a little bit more because moving around gets really tiring. But uh, the fact that I still play national team helps too. I think I think guys that don't play national team, uh, regardless of if it's for Canada or for any other country, um, having that three or four year deal might be easier because I have the chance to like go in the summer and, uh, and play really well if we be now, and then team will be like, oh, like let's pick them up for, for a good amount of money. So uh, I like I like to move around, I like to travel. So that's enough. it's not only financially. Uh, uh, so yeah, I mean I, I haven't had. I've had opportunities every year, so I've been lucky for that. And with your FTC cycle, it seems like you're you're responsible for kind of the upbringing of Canada Volleyball when you mentioned like Jay and TJ and Graham and all these guys you came up with where, uh, again, we just had Dallas on the show recently and he mentioned when he joined the national team, there were senior A guys who either didn't have a contract or some of them were playing in, in Denmark and, and not to slight them, but that is a lower level league than say Steve Marr or Riley Barnes getting like top contracts or Eric Lepke getting top contracts out of school. So have you felt that just anecdotally through clubs or through your agent that Canada volleyball has a little bit of a spotlight on it, that it is easier for guys to get contracts as a Canadian uh, national athlete right now. Uh, I think, I think it was a really long process. I think getting uh, the team back in the, in the world league stage every year, uh, guys could go be thrown in there. The younger guys could be thrown in there, like get a lot, a lot of experience. 
and then we started getting more and more results, like qualifying through the Olympics twice in a row, uh, something, things like that. We'll, we'll get you the spotlight on the national team because uh, you see the guys, like younger guys, playing the Olympics and playing well. You know? So that's uh, we're lucky, like playing really well in the NL, that'll get you contracts uh, you know, pretty easily. So uh, the development of the whole program and the team as a whole, I think, was uh, was a big factor in those small things. And Fred Winters really turned my my head on about this. About it's always going to be about money when you get a pro offer, and I think that's that's true in volleyball. But he kind of had this point system where he talked about like language, food, lifestyle, like what apartment they were going to give him, stuff like that. When you're pursuing contracts and weighing, you know, going to Italy or Russia or Turkey or whatever the offers are, what are some things that you kind of break the tie with if the offer is really really close? The level of the league, I think, and. Uh... If the money is similar in most contracts, I will give up 10,000 euros to have a better living experience because I think that's really important because unless, well, even even if you have a wife with you or kids, like you want them to be happy, you want, to be, you want them to be well, and like having a big, a nice apartment and a nice place to live makes a big difference because you're there for eight months and that's a long time. Uh, uh, but yeah, obviously the money is a big, is a big, uh, is the big thing in the contract. And obviously, the, the the later you get in your career, the less uh, years you have left, it's get, it gets even more important because you're kind of trying to cash out in a certain way. And do you ever get into conversations with either the coach or the manager talking about like what role they want you? Because I think it's fascinating that you keep going back to the level of the league and you want to push yourself and get better. But has there ever been like a system that really didn't fit your style or maybe you wanted to play right side and they had you on the left because you are so versatile? Like, are those things being talked about before you arrive or do you kind of go to the first practice and see what system they want to play and how you fit in? Uh, I haven't tried to play opposite, uh, fully opposite in the contract yet. I always, you know, I've always told coaches like if, if, if you need me to play on the right side i'm available i can um but it's never been something that was kind of year long um i'm not opposed to it i thought maybe i could try it one year but that would have to like kind of pull me back in terms of of, of the, the quality of the team or the, the like i can't really go to a high to, a top team and be like yeah i'm gonna be the starting opposite because i haven't proven that i can be consistent at a right side level right so maybe i'll have to go to a team that's not going for the title right away, but kind of build my reputation as the right side, if that's something that I want to do. So uh, um, I have not gone or getting into the team where it wasn't a spot that I wanted to be. I'm okay with not being the guy that scores 30 points a game. If there's someone else who needs to be a star, that's fine. I'll try to be, I'll try to be a good serve, good block, good receiver. Um, as long as the team performs, I'm more and more towards that. Nice. Yeah. Is that something important for you when you are looking for contracts that you want to play in cups? You want to be on a team who's going to champions league? Like how, how far in depth do you tend to look at stuff like that? Like is winning a championship every year or competing for a championship important for you? Because it looks like you've played for some top level clubs. I'm just curious, like you, you must be getting more than one offer every off season. So there, there's gotta be something that goes into breaking this tie every time. Right. For sure. There's, 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 there's quite a lot of contracts coming in. Uh, some are more interesting than others. There's, there's some that are easy to say no. Uh, when it comes, obviously there's money comparison and then pros and cons. And I think that's, that's, it's as simple as, as that. It's like you make a list and which, which you think is better. Why this is better? Uh, is this team that can be in Champions League or not? Obviously what you want as a player, uh, if you're going more for the money and that's fine, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. If you're going more for, for the title. So it depends on what you want to. 
Nice, nice. And I'll bring up TJ again because we've had a lot of great conversations on the show. I'm curious how you think the national team has kind of matured over the process where uh, when he came on with Garrett and I, we brought up the question like, if a big middle goes back and just absolutely flops a serve and hits it under the tape, like what, what's the mood in the gym? And TJ goes, well, nobody laughs. Cause like when we first start got like our group together, if we miss that serve, that probably means we weren't going to win Norseka and we weren't going to do this and we weren't on pace to be Olympians. Right. So do you kind of share that, that that was the mood in the gym? Maybe, I, I don't know, 2012, 13, that like everything was serious because we hadn't made the Olympics in a while. And that, that goal was super clear for everybody that like there wasn't a lot of joking or horsing around after warm up practice that it was it was go time. And like even beating Puerto Rico at that time was like a game we all fired up for. And that was serious. So there wasn't there wasn't those moments for a big dumb middle, like to do an original seven thing. TJ said that like we were so focused on the goal. Like, did, did you share that emotion? And was it like super serious and dial Dylan with the national team? Absolutely. Everybody wanted to be in the Olympian, right? So there was that one goal, and we knew we had to work for everything. We had to work, like you said, at the end of one month, boom, like, these guys are focused for two hours. And if somebody, like, kind of is on the path of not being focused anymore, guys are, you know, bringing back right away. Uh, I think we still have to work on that today. I think uh, we can work on accountability even more on the court, practice. But... Um, if 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 a, if a middle or anyone serves under the net, we wouldn't laugh, and we know that we can we trust the guy to be like your next serve, you can get it, you're gonna put a good serve. So there was also trust on the team, and I think that's something that's really important throughout throughout every team. Did you ever feel as a young guy it took time that you could hold others accountable? Like just a, a small example where. Uh, I've been told effort and attitude isn't really something that's talked about on the national team. Like you won't see guys not going for balls, but you will see maybe somebody misses a blocking assignment. Like, would you feel comfortable as a guy playing six to be like, you said you were going to take this and you didn't like, do you speak up right away? Or was there any equity you needed on this team before you could tell like a vet, Hey, like you missed an assignment there. Uh, it definitely took some time. I didn't, I didn't uh, show up in my first year and started talking uh, like that. Obviously I wanted to, to make myself, kind of known on the team and, and, and uh, show that I'm capable of playing at that level. Uh, but now I'm very comfortable, but it, it doesn't have to be something like direct and neat. It can just be like, hey, like next one, you need to take that, like for example, free ball in, in, uh, in two as a middle when you are opposite back goal to try to cover the pipe and with the opposite. So we, you have to take that. And if somebody misses that, like I'll tell them, but it doesn't have to be like, it's just, it might just be a reminder. So next time, like, oh yeah, right after that. Or this or like you said, and I hope every teammate does that to me. If I forget something, make you have to be better. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's if anything, it'll get everyone. It'll be it'll make everyone better. The team as a whole. And is that standard ever got exhausting to you though? Like maybe like sure you get a free ball and it's just not quite perfect. And obviously, all of a sudden, guys on the team are going to hold you accountable. Or coach is going to say something like. Is there ever just those one or two moments a year where you're kind of like, I know, and you know better? Or is it kind of that what's made Canada climb so quickly is that everybody has the same standard that you can't take a playoff? Like, uh, I'm curious when you're at like a Thursday practice leading into a Norseka tournament, like, is everybody dialed in all the time? Or does it eventually just get exhausting where you kind of got to let go? Uh, well, that's the thing is like being dialed in is something that uh, is very difficult. Like, fo- like focus is very difficult especially for a two-hour time frame where you have to focus on so many small, small things to be the best you can be. But if somebody answers to you telling, like, hey, you should be doing this, then that's when it gets a little bit more concentrational. There's no reason for someone to miss a free ball. Uh, 
Uh, if somebody talks back to you, like, there's, you can't argue not making free ball, free ball perfect. It's a free ball. Like, at that level, you can't just because that, that's why it's, it's 25, 23 as opposed to 24, 28. So, so it gets it's exhausting, but when somebody tells you something like that, you need to remind yourself being like, okay, yeah, he's right. I, I, I don't want, I can accept the mistake. I don't want to accept the mediocrity. Wow. Yeah. That's such a great way to put it. Uh, yeah. Just one more question about the culture. And I hope he's okay with me sharing this. Uh, Mike Hawkins, who's been on the show a couple of times, great guy. He mentioned he, he was coaching the youth team this summer, but he went and coached uh, with Glenn and the seniors in Gatineau. And there was one day he thought he was late for practice because practice was supposed to start at 4.30 and he walks by the gym at 4 thinking he's early and there's guys in there in a full sweat. You had already done dynamic. You've already peppered. And he's like, what's going on? And then obviously Glenn walks in. He's like, no, you're not late. Like, this is what we do here. And, and I'm interesting. How did that creep into the culture? Is that something Glenn had to demand off the start or did the vets kind of lead that where like when Glenn says practice starts at 4.30, that means like the first activity or the drill is starting, not you show up and put your shoes on. So how did that kind of creep into the system that everybody's early? Like you'll probably never see a national team guy late or late to put his shoes on where maybe some university coaches are rolling their eyes right now that when practice starts at 4.30 in their gym, that means people are arriving at 4.30. You know what I mean? So is, is that just something that as the young guys go, they just see that that's what happens or did somebody actually have to make a point that that was the standard? So funny thing, actually, when people show up at four, it's pretty short for it. <laughs> uh, so actually, like, warm-up starts at 4.30, but, like, guys are sweating already because they're really competitive playing short court. So, like, <laughs> we get here really, we get practice really early because everybody wants to play. And that's kind of like our uh, our uh, competitive, like, pre-practice competitive part. Uh, guys are going at each other or, or talking a little bit, uh, talking through the net. But it's kind of our fun before, like, serious stuff starts. Um so guys are like going hard at short court and guys get sweaty. That's, that might be where he, uh, he thought we actually worked up, but we did. We just started <laughs> short court right away. So. That's great. And will you see that with a pro club too? Or that's mostly like a national team guy where guys will show up early to compete? Like, are, are you playing short court every day before a pro practice in Turkey? Uh, no, no, I don't. Because uh, in pro, you never know like how people are unless you've been with the same guys for a long time. That's pretty rare. Uh, there's always one of the guy that's going to be just wandering around, not doing much, or, or showing up three minutes before practice, putting his shoes on and starting to warm up. Uh, you never know what you're going to get. There's some guys like, well, especially at the beginning of the year, you don't see everybody. Like, you're kind of scouting what's going on and how people act. And, but uh, I, I usually go to practice 15 minutes earlier, and if guys are starting to play short court, I see that, and I'll jump in, and I'll play, and then kind of become a routine for the rest of the year. But if nobody's playing short court, I can show up and like I just mentally get ready for the warm up and then start start practice. Nice, nice. And to take us back to let's say the qualifying for Rio, all, all that work's put in. The team's climbing. Like you're you're you've got a serious shot. Do you remember the tournament in Edmonton and kind of the roller coaster that that was? Yeah, I uh, vividly remember. Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys a team that's like? let's put it on the whiteboard, let's say it out loud, like we're going to have these goals. Like, is it something that everybody knows that like Olympics are bust here? Like how, how do you guys kind of set your goals and stay connected to them? I, I'm curious, is it something that you guys will all say out loud so everybody knows or just because of the standards, everybody does know that like we, we know what's at stake here? So before the qualifier in Edmonton, we didn't really have a, a, a mental performance coach and he kind of jumped in after that tournament and he got us kind of 
group sessions where we actually like talk about what our goals are, like just to make it really clear, like you said. So since kind of 2015, 2016, that's kind of been consistent throughout the communication and like what guys want individually, also as a group. Because if I know that, for example, TJ wants to be a better block, a better server, then when he's slacking serving or when he's like just going through the motion as we talked earlier, then I can go up to him, hey, remember that goal you want to be a better server? This is what you have to, this is what you have to put in the So everybody kind of knows what every player wants to be better at. And uh, that's where we can actually just help each other get better as individuals. So That's really impressive because my mind was going like outcome goals, team goals, but everybody seems to know like the three or four things that they're working on. So that's... And, and is that documented somewhere? Or guys are just so dialed in in that meeting that you can pay attention that even you know what the uh, all the middles are working on individually. Like, is it that in depth? Uh, we've had like we've, we've had a lot of sessions. So I think throughout through like the fifty or sixty sessions we've had throughout the last summers, uh, you kind of pick up on what guys want to work on. But obviously, like each other, like everybody has their own goals, and and guys are not really shy. To kind of share that to one another now. So, like, like for example, I want to be a better blocker. Every time I go block, I look at my defense saying, like, "Hey, like, how did my block look? Or what did I, what could I work on?" Um, obviously, there's like a time and place for that, but if it's very like specific reps for blocking, then I'll ask for feedback a lot. Guys are also really good at asking feedback, and that's kind of like into the culture of the group of the group too. Yeah, because the timing of that is super interesting to me because I think everything got magnified the year in Edmonton because you guys had worked your tails off. We're, we're finally going to qualify for the Olympics. And then two or three dudes on Cuba looked like they absolutely careered and played a great match. Uh, was it in the debrief? Was it in your mind that there was still was like a second chance qualifier? Do you guys feel like you, you'd let a chance slip away there because family was there, friends were there, it was on TV probably. Like it was a big deal in Canada where now you didn't quite get it. Like does the mood eventually shift to we got a second chance or was there a lot of upset people in the room that night? A lot of upsets, a lot of tears. Uh, it was a chance that we missed, but it was a chance that we missed uh, because we were already thinking ahead that we were already qualified. So I think that's a big, that was a big, uh, that was going through everybody's mind that day. Uh, and then the game, I think it lasted about an hour. We uh, went in there and got, got beat very easily. It didn't look like we pushed back. I mean, they can have a great game, but we didn't answer. We just like, we were like kind of accepting like, oh, they got a great game. And, we're going to lose. and that just, it was like a, an hour of just like us, or us being smacked. And then after that, we was like, wow, we just blew a, Big, big chance to be Olympians. Now, when you look back on that, is that something a leader can squash? Because obviously you want to go in with confidence, but you don't want to have like your plane ticket booked before you've even earned it. But you want guys to be confident and feel like they deserve the moment. So when you look back, is that something that either coach or a leader on the team or somebody should have spoke up and said, like, guys, the job's not done yet? Or or where do you walk that line of being confident and knowing you can get the job done without looking too far ahead? Uh, After we qualified me? Yeah. Like, as you mentioned, like, you guys thought you already made it where, like, the game against Cuba hadn't even started, right? So where do you walk the line of, like, confidence versus you know you have work to do? Uh, well, right after, I think it was, it was uh, I mean, the clear message was, like, guys, we still have another chance to fall behind. But it'll take some time for the guys to not be upset, you know? And uh, I think another thing was, like, yeah, we're back to work. What do I need? What does Gord need? What does so and so need to be better and qualify for the next chance we have? And 
I mean, that was an experience, right? When we had another chance to qualify, guys were sharper mentally right away because we knew that everybody remembered that moment where we didn't qualify because I think mentally we weren't as sharp as we should play against those guys. So I think experience was a great part of the one qualified after that and for Tokyo as well. Yeah, as you're explaining that, that's where my mind goes, that it almost seems like you have to experience something like that before you really know what's at stake or, or the reality of it. So I, I think the Rio cycle to me was fascinating because there was a good mix of guys. And one thing that's fascinating about World League or VNL is you have to have so many guys, but then to cut that down to 12 has to be so super, super stressful. Do you remember your experience? Like, were you... I, I think the team was actually announced abroad. You guys were in a hotel. Like, do you remember just that morning waiting to figure out who was going to get the call? Like, what order were you in the meeting? Like, do you remember, were you feeling like uh, my name's going to get called or did you feel like you were a bubble guy? I was pretty confident because I had a great, I had a good worldly tournament. I, think. I was pretty confident, but I was a really young guy. So my mind was kind of like, well, if I make it great, if I don't, then I'll have to work and make, make it to Tokyo uh, four years from now. Um, I remember it was in Portugal. We just won World League Two, and he announced it just after we won. So I think we played in the afternoon, and we back uh, got back in the hotel, and that's kind of when he went through the the meetings. Uh, I don't remember exactly which uh, where I was in the meeting, but I remember. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it was easy to pick big guys. Um, a lot of veterans were there too, so it was it was it was kind of a bittersweet uh, evening. And does that get addressed as a team or you have to kind of make it a point to go find Dan when you know he's not called or like Adam Simak or, or some of these guys who have put so much into the team, but they weren't going to be called in Rio. Like, did you guys have a big team meeting after that or just your, your group was so strong that you, you hunted out those guys just to connect with them? Well, actually they, they, I think they just stayed with the team even after that and had a few beers or, or a glass of wine together. And it, it felt like a team. I mean, uh, if I was getting cut, I didn't want someone to be like, hey, it'll be okay. Like, I just want, like, to just, I would just want to hang out. I don't want to talk about it. Like, I understand, but I'm just trying to, it's, it's hard to approach because you don't know what the other guy wants uh, in those situations. Uh, I remember recently JVD didn't make the squad for Tokyo and and, uh, and the same thing. He came in and just like, he was JVD. I mean, he, I, I can't imagine anyone else doing it, like, taking it the way he did. Uh, he came in the room and like, like, he was like, he was, he genuinely came out and said, like, I'm so proud of Van Burkle for making the team and how much work he put into, like, making the squad. And that was the other guy who was competing. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so I think, I think the easier is, is for the, like, you let the other guy reach out to the team because if the guy wants to be alone, then that's fine. Um, you can also vocalize that. I mean, we're so close now that, like, being honest, I think, is, is a good part of the, the team's culture now. Yeah, that's great to hear. And then with the Olympics being a goal for such a long time, did it feel magnified? Like, be honest, you've played at international level for so long. Does VNL feel different than the Olympics because the Olympics is like the mecca and it's so talked about? Or does it feel like another international competition? Like, is there a different feel to being in Rio or Tokyo? Uh, if I compare the two Olympics? Uh, even the, compare the two Olympics, but even compare like when you play deep into a VNL and you're playing like a really good volleyball team, are you preparing different for that than you would be for Rio? Like to me, it's still an international volleyball game, but I feel like the Olympics gets so much more attention that it's just talked about more and it's a goal of everybody that even though it's still just volleyball, does it feel that much different? Uh, it does. It does feel different. At least I feel different when I play. Like I, I 
I'm giving my all to the NL, but somehow the Olympics, you just give that, you just find that extra little uh, kick to play. And it's, it's, it's hard to describe, but it, it does, you feel sharper when you play. There's like nothing else going on around. Like, I know there were no fans, but like it didn't bother me. It didn't feel like, like there was no, no noise or anything. Like it was just, I, it's just so much easier, I guess, to dial in and do this. Because um, Vianal is like, well, if we don't win this, it's not a big deal. But like, if you don't win or if you don't perform the Olympics, like, you have to wait another four years, and you don't that you don't, you don't get that many Olympics to play in your whole life. So it's it's a, it's a lot of things to 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 to, to sink in. But I, I don't know. It's 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 a weird it's a weird feeling to try to explain. But it's, I think it's easier to dial in the Olympic game than it is easier in, in, in the fact that like it's just bigger. Yeah, before we go performance, just even the two games, uh, I guess COVID making a complete opposite. Like when you're in Rio and it's a volleyball crazy country like Brazil uh, versus Tokyo, who's also a volleyball crazy country, but uh, no fans, like you're only allowed to probably go to three or four places in the village. Like, did that really change the mindset? Like in Rio, was it a bit of a just a, a madhouse with people around and like the attention the sport was getting versus Tokyo with with COVID? Like you kind of felt like you were in a bubble a little bit? It was actually easier to focus in Tokyo, considering you could really leave the village and, and go around and experience things. In Rio, you could you could go to the Canada house and see your family, which is great. But in Tokyo, you didn't have that option, so it was kind of like, well, what else am I going to do? Focus on what I'm supposed to do. So Rio was great because I got to experience the whole Olympics as a whole. Like opening ceremony is a great is a great event, and I'm kind of sad that I didn't get to experience it again in Tokyo. Um, hopefully, we will in Paris and. Um, so yeah, it, it was very different, but I think the games in Tokyo were just easier because there was less distractions. And when, when I say easy, it's not easy. I mean, it's just it's just there's less going on. Yeah, like if you wanted to in Tokyo, I don't think you were allowed to go watch another sport if you wanted to. Or in Rio, you could have on your free time, right? Yeah, yeah, we weren't allowed to leave the village at all. So you mean like go to the other sports. So at the same time, was it harder to switch off? Because when you're in your room, are you not tempted to watch video or to watch your previous performance? Like in Tokyo, how would you have maybe filled the free time a little bit so you weren't like just going in circles in your own mind? Well, you can still go around the village. Like the village, within the village, it was very much normal. Like you just had to wear a mask and like sanitize your hand all the time. Uh, so you can go to the cafeteria, you go to the, the Samsung store. There's like some things you can walk around and just relax. There's also like, in every room, there was a TV with all the Olympic channels, so you could also watch other sports if you want to kind of like put your mind away from volleyball for a bit. Uh, so yeah, there was a, there was a lot of things you could do within the village as long as it doesn't obviously distract you from your from your performance. And looking at the results, I mean, the performance was similar with the fifth, but how we got there seemed completely different uh, with Brazil because it was the first time for a lot of guys, was there almost just like a sense of relief or did you feel like you were dialed in? Like when you got off a plane in Rio, was the goal to win a gold medal or was it honestly like the goal was to make the Olympics and now we're going to enjoy it? Like how was the mood around the team? Uh, in Rio, we definitely wanted to compete. Uh, we didn't really specify. We, we obviously want the medal, but now that we... In Tokyo, we had kind of the second wave of, of, of guys that are experienced and that have been to the Olympics. That's another thing. Uh, so we could share our, our experience with the guys that didn't make the Olympics before. And Tokyo was like, we want a medal. And that's kind of the only goal we have there. We did medal. It was a, a, for me, it was a disappointment 
I think for, for all the guys, we, we were all disappointed not to medal and, and to not not winning against the Russians in quarters. Uh, so it was a disappointment, but that was the goal. And sometimes you don't achieve your goals, so that's okay. And does any of the, the noise or distraction ever creep into the team room? I'm, I'm curious because uh, I imagine for... I don't know, Team Canada Hockey, they maybe are a little bit more aware of some of the talk because there's just more reporters, there's more news, like it's harder to avoid. But uh, back home here, when we lost to Japan, there was a small little uproar here in Ontario and in a couple of Facebook groups about talent ID and how we, we develop athletes and look at Japan. They don't have these big athletes, but look at them play and they did all this stuff. I was wondering, did that ever reach the team? Because it, it didn't seem like it was a distraction, but it was kind of like a mini distraction here in the volleyball community. But uh, did, did any news get back to you guys in the team room? I, I haven't heard about it that you're the one the first time I've, I've heard of it. Uh, I mean, we get a lot of distractions there. Like a lot of people want to talk on radio, on TV. So like there's distractions and it's not about trying to push them away. It's just how you deal with them. So if that were to reach the team, I'm sure maybe some guys did, did hear about it, but it didn't, it didn't keep us from performing inside around the game after. Yeah, I was going to say, your, your game against Iran quickly squashed the conversation because it's even going like high school coaches were speaking up being like, oh, you know, we've had so many good players, but because they're labeled undersized, they get cut, where in Japan they would excel and all this stuff. And it felt like it was very over-the-top anecdotal proof. But uh, my, my guess had it wouldn't, hadn't reached you guys as a distraction because it, it seemed like business as usual the next match. Yeah, I mean, again, we we, we had to win against Iran for a chance to still be there to, to make it to, out of the group. So guys were dialed in. I'm really proud of the group, especially when it comes to mental preparation. We were all really ready to go. Uh, physically, we're great. Uh, we just underperformed a little bit against the Russians, I think. Um, they played really well. I mean, they're a great team. I think it was kind of like the same thing as Rio, but both teams played much better than they did, which made made up for a great game. But uh, we didn't end up winning, so... And, and right after Rio, there seemed to be a change with the team where uh, I think that was around the time where Stefan Antigua stepped in and Glenn stepped away. Um, how did you feel about that experience? Like, was it just time because, you know, your FTC group, like we talked about, got through, got the cycle, like reached a major milestone. Was it just time for a different voice or a different approach? Like, how did you feel about a new coach coming in and kind of having their influence on the team? Uh, again, Steph, Steph's uh, philosophy was, was was different than Glenn's. I think uh, I think it was great, great approach. Uh, I think it would have been fun to have him for another two years to so see where the team would have been. At first, I don't think Glenn wanted to come back, but it was kind of his decision. Kind of was like, well, I'm I'm the easier fit because guys know me already, and it's only two years before the Olympics, right? And only I think uh, a year before the qualifier, so it was easy for him to step in and help. Him team but it would have been nice to see because some guys really appreciated the way Steph did things and I like I love it too but it's just two different things right but the thing is we don't know maybe if Steph came maybe we wouldn't have qualified and we would have meddled so we don't really know but the, the, the different philosophy that Steph thought I think made guys play a little bit more free whether that's for the, for the worst of it don't know but uh, so yeah now, I've kind of discussed this with a few coaching friends. I'd be interested as a, you as an athlete, your perspective, that I think Glenn had to go so heavy system because when he took over the team, it didn't seem like a lot of that was in place. So the, like he needed to overdo the blocking system. He needed to overdo the serving strategy. 
do you feel like you guys ever like maybe graduated that level? And that's why Antigua was kind of perfect timing because uh, I think Glenn style maybe was massaged a little bit about where the team was and how, like what was the quickest way to get results? Well, you know, we had guys leaving university, maybe they weren't playing the top pro league. So it was just great to get everybody on the same page system wise versus relying on a little bit more of a freestyle system. Right. Yeah. So, so when Steph came in, he, he, he was a performing coach, performance coach, sorry. He, he came in and made the A team perform as opposed to trying to develop also the A, the B team, and youth, and the G team. Glenn kind of tries to oversee everything. Uh, so maybe that's that's what maybe Steph's freer spirit, let's say, uh, came in and kind of obviously had that easier going, I guess, when the guys were already a little bit more mature and had that experience with EO. And like you said, uh, there was a system in place where guys could be disciplined blocking certain things. So, so maybe that that changed a little bit our system. We, we, we had a great result in 2017 World League uh, winning bronze. And then uh, I think we finished ninth in Worlds. Uh, maybe that was that was also underperforming from for the group in general. Uh, so that was disappointing. But but I think playing on the step was really fun. He, he, he brought a different aspect of practice, which which I think a lot of guys enjoyed. Uh, so yeah, I, I really liked playing for step. Um, it, was, it was upsetting when we left. Do you get a sense that everyone who steps into uh, the High Performance Center in Gatineau has a sense of how hard Glenn works? And what I mean was you just talked about like he's involved in like the youth coaches and he hires them and he does the junior team and he does this team where like does everyone know that he has kind of his fingerprints all over the whole program that when you put in your let's say three hours of practice day and you have a meeting and you're done for the day that Glenn's like still there for another eight hours probably or whatever else work he's putting in like does everyone know how like uh, obsessed and how involved he is at every single level? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I see him at home now. I, I play I play for him here. So I see him uh, when he's not working for his professional club, he's working for the ball, yeah, even when he's here. So he, his, his brain is going a thousand miles an hour. Uh, like you said, he's at, if he's he doesn't go home between practices, he works at his office. And even when he goes home, he works. Uh, sometimes he wakes up at two in the morning and works. Uh, when he can't sleep. So he, he does a lot for me. It's easier to see. Cause I see, I talk to him basically every day, even when I wasn't playing for him, uh, when I was playing professionally other, like in other, other countries. Um, but in the summer also, I, I see him quite a lot more than the other guys like, as, as a father and son relationship, but we always talk about volleyball. So, um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. He, he gives everything. I think obsessions is, 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 a, is a great word. <laughs> When Antigua had to step away, and, and I don't think it was performance reason, it was probably more personal, but you and I don't have to get into that. But do you feel Glenn was a little bit more refreshed because he had stepped away from the team? Like, did he come in with like a, a different mindset or a different approach, or he's so consistent that it was the same Glenn who you guys had uh, a couple seasons before? Uh, he tried to change. I think. I think he tried to kind of keep going with what Steph kind of builds up with the team. Uh, but again, there's it's such a different philosophy. Well, no, it's not super different, but it, it is it, it is different a little bit. So um, the freestyle kind of faded away from the from the team, which uh, maybe that's why some guys kind of were confused a bit because Glenn likes like the very systematic approach to volleyball and like clean blocking and no no scrappy plays, which which I think Steph kind of asked to play more like. Which, uh, which I think a lot of guys liked and won quite well at. So uh, it's hard to say, but I think 
he tried to adapt as best as he could. Um, but I don't think it was easy for him either. So, <laughs> Do you think in his mind is just because we have a system and we don't want to make errors and we don't want to do things that like, let's say free ball happens and you come out of the pipe and try to jump set it like Agapeth would, like when those first clips, is that something that maybe would have drove Glenn nuts in 2014 because you guys are taking too much risk and that's not the system? Or like when you say this freestyle approach, like what's maybe an example of what's acceptable versus what is too much risk and isn't going to get it done? Uh I think I think blocking was was something that Steph really enjoyed when guys took risk blocking. Like for example, you're one on one, you try to reach down the line, reach across, or some some small things like that. Like Glenn just wants a good solid block and then work the defense around it. That that's that's a big difference between Steph and Glenn. Um, yeah, coming into the pipe and setting, I think I think it, it drives Glenn even nuts now. <laughs> Instead of getting a good set, even like he, he he'd rather you go up onto and just get the pipe as opposed to fake it and then set it or just give it a set. So you would rather you go up on the pipe to hit it than like fake hitting it and then setting it and then missing the set. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it does drive Glenn nuts to this day, to be honest, because it happens a few times in practice. I tried it once and I missed it and he, he, he lost it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did try to get <laughs> Now, I am curious because it does happen in sport where there's probably an 11-year-old playing Little League right now and either their mom or dad is their coach. And that comes with a certain expectation or a certain optics to it where you're doing it at an international level. And you mentioned you're doing it with your pro club, but you've done it at the national team. Is there any advice you would give to either the coach or the athlete about just things that you've battled and that you've gained confidence from, because obviously you're performing at this level or you wouldn't be here. Like you're, you're not on the national team because you're Glenn's son, but is there ever a certain, uh, just thought process you've had to battle or feel like you've had to defend that you deserve this opportunity as much as anybody else? I think communication, uh, especially it, it was really difficult at first. Uh, I think I, I've, I've totally talked a lot about, about it to, to a lot of people because I get that question a lot. It's hard at first because the coach kind of doesn't know if you should go harder or not as hard or like it's, it's hard. And then the coach sometimes is still upset at the performance of the player uh, post-practice when, and then the son maybe thinks it's hard to, to, to be a son and not a, a player. So that's, it, there's a lot of confusion there. But once you get into a groove of kind of knowing each other in terms of on, on and off the court, knowing when the boundaries of practice and off practice, I think it's a great relationship to have. Uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, he, we have a great relationship now, even on and off the court. Um, I ask I ask a lot from him, he asks a lot from me. And obviously I have to, throughout the, the, the many years, especially in the first few years, I had to prove a lot. And maybe that's why he was a little tougher on me the first few years. I had to prove that I had to be on the team, not because he was a coach, but because I deserved to be there. So I think that was a lot of a lot of that was a lot of the process. I think. And did you ever feel Once like? He, sorry, go ahead. When he trust when he started trusting me to be the player that I am or that I want to be, and that's he could, I could be a, a, a player like that. And did you ever feel like you had to battle like the optics from teammates as well? Like maybe after a really hard practice and guys are, are mad at coach that you you delay going to the team room or you get some extra reps on your own because you just don't want to overhear what they're saying about your dad? Or, or were you able to kind of navigate being like they're talking about him as a coach, not him as a person right now? Because there's got to be heated moments that uh, I think sometimes for coaches, they're delivering a message that is not personal. But to the athlete, it's going to be personal. So when they're venting to a teammate 
do you try to deliberately avoid those conversations or are you able to navigate and say, okay, I understand where he's coming from? Like, how would you recommend like a younger athlete handle those overhearing those conversations? I don't want guys to filter stuff. Uh, I mean, if they insult the person he is, then that's different. I mean, there's no reason for that, right? But I, I, I cannot, I can differentiate when a guy is talking about him as a coach and him as a person. There's no, no, no guy in the national that hates Glenn as a person. Uh, I don't know if they hate him as a coach, uh, but when they criticize Glenn, I, he, they criticize the coach, which is something that I can take. Like that's why I criticize him too. I mean, he wants criticism, right? It, it just helps him get better. Um, I don't, I don't shy away from that. I, I always go back to the guys, and the guys are, are very comfortable with that now too, which is great. I think I, I don't, I don't want to be the son's, the, the coach's son. I want to be the player, like the player part of the team. Nice, yeah, that, that's a great way to describe it. While we're on the subject, I'm curious with the team that performs like you guys do. It is it described? Is there a pathway for criticism to happen, or is it like you you guys are in the hotel uh, boardroom because you're doing a video session? Are guys raising their hand and saying, "Glenn, like that serving strategy and blocking strategy is not going to work"? Like, is that called out in the moment? Is there like a time and place for like a one on one conversation? Is he doing the flip side where he's showing some clips of you maybe not underperforming and he's calling you out in front of the team? Or how have you guys found that system where you can openly criticize without kind of attacking the person in both like a one on one sense but also in a team sense? Again, we've been together for so long that we trust one another for to criticize in a good way. Like it's never personal. We worked a lot on that because it's, it's hard to not take it personally. Right? But guys understand when they mess up, and when there's a lot of like plays that we miss, then Glenn will like grab the whole team and be like, "Hey, like you should have done this, 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 this." And like guys will be like, "Yeah, obviously, like the video shows it," but like he, and then vice versa too, like. Obviously, they look a lot like they watch a lot more video than they do. Um, so when they come with a game plan, uh, and there's a, a, a player on the other team that I played against, that's when I can kind of spill the information I know about that player. And then Glenn's always open. Like if you say like, "Hey, do you think it would be a good idea to do this?" And then you like, "Oh yeah, like I'll think about it. I'll look at video and then add it to the game plan." So there's a lot of a lot of uh, feedback going back and forth from coach staff and coaching staff and the players. And in a timeout or between sets where time is so valuable, are players kind of open to speaking up or is that really the coach's time because we need to get everybody on the same page? Like if you're on a certain blocking assignment and you're saying that's not working, like do you have the green light in that 30 second chat to like interrupt and say, we got to like change this pathway here? Usually if something doesn't work, they're pretty good at at adjusting right away. But if not, if not individually, the guys are pretty confident. Like Glenn's okay with middle staking decisions on the fly. Like saying like, oh, I'm going to commit, even though like sometimes we're on this position, we're not committing, but this middle blocker is like scoring a lot. So like this one, I'll commit. And then if, if, it, if it doesn't work, then it's the middle's fault and Glenn will be okay. At least you made a decision you were like four about. Um, there's some timeouts that Glenn say like, hey guys, listen to me right away. And some other timeouts where it's more like you say a little something and we still have like 20 seconds and then guys, guys will talk a lot. And guys from the bench too, like that are watching the game will come in and say a lot of feedback to certain guys. So there's a lot of communication going on in timeouts, which is which is great. And then looking ahead here to Paris, I mean, we got a little bit of a short cycle with only three years to get it done. Uh, What are your own personal feelings? Like what's the sense around the team that are we at the start of a new cycle where we're going to lose a couple guys? Does it feel like that core group that you've been with so long is fired up? Like uh, what's the mood when you say Paris in the, in the Gatineau training gym right now? 
Um, there's a few guys that are done national team. There's a few guys that are question marks that I'm not sure if they're coming back or not. Um, I can't I can't really say names. I'm not sure exactly like if they're 100 percent out. Uh, um, we'll find out next summer. Um, I'm definitely in for another three years at least. Um, after that, beyond that, we'll see. It depends on how the body holds up and, and my personal life too, because that's taking me hit every summer. But but I'm definitely in until Paris, and I I hope I hope as many guys as you can like want to come back. So I think you have to get shot qualifying. And, and, um, I, I want an Olympic medal. That's kind of my goal for my career right now, my long-term goal, let's say. Um, that's what I want to work through. Yeah, when you mentioned personal life, can you just lay out, the, very simple, like you can even just do it in big chunks, but just for me and the listeners, you'll play pro this year for, let's call it eight or nine months, and then you'll come home. How much time do you consider a year off versus when you're off, but you have to be at national team practice or a national team competition? Like, what what is this double life that our, our national team players are having to go through? Because you're responsible to your club, you're responsible to VC, but how much family and, and social time are you getting? Uh, I was really lucky because my girlfriend uh, lives in Ottawa. So, I mean, it's, it's right next to Arcano. So, I've been living for the past five summers, I've been living with her. So I've been really lucky, but for guys that, that their families are not there, I mean, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. I mean, it's, 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 it's dedication, uh, which is great. Sacrifices too, because their families are out West or, or they're not with them. And, and it's, 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 especially with DNL, it's like you're gone for five weeks uh, straight. Then you come back, you have two weeks off and you come back for like every for world championships or the qualifier. Or so, um, the, the center being in Gano for me, it hasn't been, hasn't impacted me too much because I mean my girlfriend like I said is there in Ottawa and my friends are three hours away to Sherbrooke sure, so if I have a weekend off and have time I can still go uh, it's more for the guys that have been uh, been out east when all their friends are out west I mean hats off to them to be honest and do you think because Glenn is such a strong planner like has there ever been an opportunity where maybe a VNL guy like a west coast guy is a 50-50 that he'll get time off because Glenn is just so aware of what they need at that time or or is it almost you're so professional that this is your job that uh, I know you haven't been home all year but we need you to go to this event uh, that's something that Glenn is really good at I think uh, when we when want to compete at VNL and, and want to do well I think gives tries to kind of cycle the guys through a week off within the five weeks so, uh, so out of the five weeks there's one week off that the guy will have, or if obviously if there's injuries, that's different. But uh, um, Glenn is really is really good with rest and understanding people's how they feel, and especially like doing practice. Say hey, like he'll come up to me like how do you feel physically, or um, and obviously guys like are starting to have children, uh, they're, they're getting married, so those are things that he's and he puts in the schedule the, the calendar. So he's really good with that. We'll see with the with whoever's going to be the new coach. We'll see how that goes. And obviously you have a great relationship, but I'm curious with the other guys, how much is this master plan shared with everybody? Like to, to use the TJ example where nobody laughs because now we're not going to qualify for this Narsika event and we're not going to do this. Like, are, are you guys every year kind of brought in about what this long-term plan is or does Glenn kind of keep that behind the curtain a little bit so you can focus on performance? Like in 2014, are you guys talking about the Olympics or was it just too far away for where the squad was that we knew we needed a, another season or two before it was going to be a realistic goal? Everybody has it in mind, I think. I think now everybody has Paris 2024 in mind. Uh, I don't think Glenn has to give it out or saying like, oh, this is what we need to do to get there. Uh, he has that in the, behind the curtains, like as you said. And his, his master plan uh, kind of is worked behind there. And he kind of throws it throws us into it without 
us kind of knowing. Nice. I so imagine yeah, there's practice and we go through practice and he does what's best for, for the future. So. Nice. Nice. Yeah, no, he's definitely, uh, I don't think so many people remember because I've talked to younger kids and they always get excited for the Olympics, but I don't think they remember the era where we didn't make it for a long, long time. So it's just great to see where the program is and, and hopefully keeps going because uh, I, I think the structure is in place that it's definitely got a whole systematic feel to it, which is great. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing all that you did. You, I've definitely learned a lot and it was good to confirm where exactly you grew up and what the timing was. Cause like I said, there was a few uh, legendary stories out there, but uh, I was hoping you could give us one more story just to give us a quick laugh as somebody who grew up in a volleyball house. You've played at the highest level. You, you've been with our national team for feels like a very long time, but something odd or funny must've happened along the way. I was hoping you could share a story with us before we let you go. Um, the, the one story I love reminiscing on and talking to the guys about is, uh, I think it was 2013. We were going to the Fisher games in, uh, in Kazan, and we had a layover in Istanbul. And I think it was like an eight-hour layover. And so we kind of find, find this little like quiet spot under some stairs to like some guys could sleep and, and just just relax. And our flight, I think, was was leaving in about two hours. And uh, Daniel Jensen and Dora was still sleeping, so all the guys picked up their stuff and brought it up the stairs and pretended like pretend like we were leaving. And then everybody was waiting on top of the stair at the top of the stairs, and and, uh, and Chris, I remember my brother, so everybody was filming already, had their cameras on, and we he goes back down the stairs and goes to see JD and wakes him up and shakes shakes him. He's like, Dad, Dad, we're gonna we're gonna miss the flight. You gotta go. You gotta go. And then you can see him pick up all his stuff and a shampoo, like sprinting up the stairs. He <laughs> was just standing on top of the stairs filming, and he was like half sleeping, and he was it was just such a great great. Great time. It was, uh, everyone was just dying laughing. Everyone was kind of so confused. And just, <laughs> it was great. So that's, that was a, a small prank that we, that we, that we set up for him. So that was, that was good. I mean, honestly, there's so many good memories and, 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 that this life offers uh, on the national team and professional. Like, if you like traveling, uh, eating different foods and, and seeing the world, I mean, it's a great, it's a great career to have. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do any, any, any differently, honestly. Awesome, man. Well said. Well, thanks for sharing all that you did. I feel like there's still a ton more stories, so we'll have to try to get you on soon. But uh, best of luck with your your, your season. I, I know you're into cup season already, so thanks for making time for us. And yeah, we'll definitely be on the lookout because I think Paris is going to be you know peak season for Team Canada Volleyball. It looks like every year we get a little bit better, and I'm really excited to see what this squad can do. Absolutely. Thanks for having me again.